I saw both my daughters come into the world. It was a marvelous thing. Of course, it was pretty pain-free for me. I just lost a little sleep. But it was a wonderful thing to behold, mostly because they're mine. And uh, I also saw, not the same day, but I uh, saw cats come into the world. And my daughter's, uh, my sister-in-law's uh, farm in East Texas, I got to see some cats being born a couple years ago, and that was pretty interesting too. Uh, don't really like cats, but it was interesting to, to see it. But if I had the chance to view a birth, uh, I think I would choose to, to view a giraffe. I read in, uh, you say, well, that's pretty weird. Gary Richmond, Gary Richmond has a book called uh, A View from the Zoo. And in it, he describes what it's like to watch a baby giraffe, not just the birth so much, that's pretty uneventful, except for the, the ten-foot fall. Uh, but after the ten-foot fall, it's what happens next that's really interesting. Uh, the, the giraffe falls out and down and hits the ground on its back after falling 10 feet and comes up and lands uh, on its, rolls over on its tummy with its legs tucked underneath it. And the first thing the mom does after a couple of minutes of the baby just sitting there is look back and get kind of a perspective of where the calf is. And then the mother will take her big long lanky leg and go boom and kick that calf to where it just goes sprawling across the yard and uh, when the calf doesn't get up that giraffe does the most remarkable thing it'll walk over there and position itself again just right and go boom and kick that calf across the yard until finally the calf gets the hint that he needs to get up and so he gets up and finally victory standing on these wobbly legs you know he's standing exactly what his mother wanted him to do and you know what she goes off and does she kicks him down again. Why? Because she wants him to remember how he got up. She wants him to learn how to get up quickly. Because in the wild, if a little giraffe can't get up quickly, he's basically food for lions and hyenas and wild dogs that love to prey on little lazy giraffes. And so the mother, what to a bystander looks like an act of cruelty is actually a very loving act to prepare this little giraffe from a greater destruction than simply being hurled across the yard. What the giraffe does by instinct, God does intentionally. And I think that we are much like that little giraffe. We have no idea why the one who's supposed to be loving us more than all others is hurling us across the yard. We can't understand why God does some of the things He does, why God allows some of the pain that we go through while we're going through it. But the first time we outrun a hyena, we'll go up and we'll thank God for kicking us across that yard. God often acts in unorthodox ways. In fact, most often He does. Because as David quoted from Isaiah, His ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts than our thoughts. So how do we come to grips with this unorthodox God we have? Let's look at Genesis chapter 48 as we get a great view of our unorthodox God in action. 
Now don't misunderstand me. By unorthodox, I mean his actions, not his doctrine. <laughs> unorthodox usually refers to someone who uh, doesn't hold to the truth of the Scriptures. Certainly God does. But by unorthodox, I mean he doesn't act like we think a God should act. In Genesis 48, we won't go through the whole Joseph story or it'd take the whole hour. Basically, just to summarize, that Joseph's family has come down to Egypt to escape the famine. And Joseph's family is really the whole nation of Israel at this point, about 70 people. And they've come down, and now in chapter 48, Joseph, who is the leader, basically the governor of Egypt, hears that his father, Jacob, or Israel, is about to die. So let's look at the first few verses here. Now it came about after these things that Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. When it was told to Jacob... Uh, let's see. I'm sorry. Would it be any trouble to turn these lights on right here, Al? Will that make the screen too bright? Can you all over there still see the screen if we turn these lights on up here? Right up here, yes. Because I can't read. That's enough. Can you still see the screen? Or is it dim it out? Alright, good. Thank you. Now I can see my screen. Let me start over. It came about after these things that Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. When it was told to Jacob, Behold, your son Joseph has come to you. Israel collected his strength and sat up in the bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. But your offspring that have been born to you after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the names of their brothers in their inheritance. Now as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey. When there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. What's going on here? Well, our culture isn't like the Jewish culture was. Uh, we don't understand the issue of blessing and the issue of the firstborn and all that. So let me tell you just a little about what's happening. When Jacob is saying that uh, there in Luz or Bethel, it's otherwise called, God came to him and basically reiterated the covenant that he had made with Jacob's granddad, Abraham, with the promise of land called the promised land. And he says that your descendants are going to have it. And so now Jacob, now they're in Egypt, remember. Jacob tells his son Joseph, your two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, are now on equal par with my sons. And they too are going to inherit a portion of this land. If you read through the Bible, you come across a reference sometimes to the twelve tribes of Israel, descended from the twelve sons of Israel, or Jacob, the man. And yet, we're told that there is no tribe of, of Joseph. You ever notice? But you see a tribe of Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. So essentially what Jacob is doing 
is elevating his grandsons to the status of sons. And Joseph gets the honor of his two sons now sharing in the inheritance of the land. A land in which Joseph's mother, Rachel here, died. And I kind of get the impression Joseph being would have been seven years old when his mom died. He would have remembered it. I kind of get the impression that his dad takes him back to that time. In essence, kind of mentally. Like we would say, you know, swear on your mother's grave. It's kind of the same idea, I think, of, of him taking his son back to the memory of his mother's death and saying, just as surely as she is in Canaan, as surely as she died, I want to swear that your sons are going to inherit this land. Okay, let's look at verse 8. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, These are my sons whom God has given me here. So he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them close to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your children as well. You kinda, I wondered when I first read verse 8 again, why in the world, after talking about Ephraim and Manasseh, Jacob turns to Ephraim and Manasseh and says, Who are these? And then we read on down and we see it's because he couldn't see. Lo and behold, the very ones he'd been talking about are standing there. So he, he tells Joseph, Well, bring them here and let me bless them. And now let me read verse 12 through the end of the chapter. Joseph took them from his knees and bowed with his face to the ground. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left, Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right, and brought them close to him. But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. And may my name live on in them, and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. And may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him. And he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. And he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel shall pronounce blessings, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. And I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Well, now we've kind of gotten the story. Let's talk about how it can apply to us. Let's pretend that just for a day, you get to be God. 
Okay? Just for a day. What would you do if you were God for a day? Think about it. Do you rig the lottery? No? You say that. What if you were God for a day? You know, you might start with something noble so everybody would like you. Like uh, world peace. That'd be popular. Trouble is, how would you keep it? You might solve the issue of starvation where we would all not be so selfish with what God's given us and we'd feed one another. The, the problem is you're only God for a day. How are you going to rig it to where that continues after you're gone? Maybe you figure, well, okay, we'll get rid of all the bad people in the world. We'll deal with evil and all the injustice in the courts. Okay, so where do you start? You say, well, let's start with the drug lords. It's a good place to start. Yeah, it's a good place to start. But where are you going to stop? Because if you're God, you're perfect. And you can allow no sin in your presence. No sinner can ever enter the presence of God. So what are you going to do? You have to wipe everybody out in order to be just. You say, well, I'll be merciful. Okay? So you'll be merciful. To whom? And on what basis are you going to be merciful? You say, well, I just pick and choose. Well... It's a lot harder being God, from our perspective, than it seems initially. God acts a certain way, and we wonder why he's lifting his leg and kicking us across the yard. He doesn't act the way we think he should act, and yet when he operates out of his prerogative to be God, for some reason we have a problem with that. How can the justice of God and the mercy of God ever be compatible. Because if, if he has mercy on sinners, he's not being just. If he has justice on sinners, he's not being merciful. And yet we're told in the Bible God is both just and merciful. How can he be both? If you were God, how would you be both? Be pretty tough. And yet that problem was solved in a way that none of us ever would have fathomed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that because we are sinners and because, because God is just, it demands death for sin. And to have one person die for the sins of everybody, that one person has to be an eternal person to where his death could atone for an infinite number of sins. The Lord Jesus came down, uh, God came down in the person of Jesus Christ and died on the cross, uh, a death he didn't deserve. And God's justice was met. All sins were paid for at the cross. His mercy comes in that he offers forgiveness to anybody who will believe in the Lord Jesus. So you see, at the cross, God's justice met God's mercy and both were satisfied. Only God, who is all wise, could figure out something like that. You and I probably would have done it differently. The standard for death is whoever's worse than us. If there's anything at all we need to remember from our story today about our unorthodox God is that His ways are not our ways. We saw in verse 14 that said, Israel stretched out his right hand, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. The entire life of both Ephraim and Manasseh, they were both in their 20s at this event, their entire lives and Joseph's 
uh, raising them, they all expected that Manasseh, being the firstborn, would receive the blessing of the firstborn, which was represented by the, the father laying his right hand on the forehead and pronouncing this blessing that I read. And yet he crossed his hands, and so Joseph protests and figures, well, he can't see. Figures that he can't see straight. So he tells him, no, Dad, you, you're, you got your hands crossed. This is the firstborn. Lay your right hand here. And his answer just shows the wisdom. And you almost wonder if he didn't just shake his head and close his eyes as he said, I know, my son, I know. I'm not that blind. I know who's the firstborn. And yet you see God had chosen the younger over the older. It took Jacob a long time, in fact a lifetime, to come to grips with the way his unorthodox God worked. And it's not the first time God did it in the family. Abraham, the one that started this whole deal, he chose his firstborn, technically, uh, Ishmael. So the Lord bless him. God said, no, I want to bless Isaac. The next one, the next son. Then Isaac, now he's the father. He chooses Esau. God says, nope, nope, I want to choose Jacob. Now Jacob's the father. He's got ten sons that are older than little Joseph, and yet Joseph is chosen. Joseph is now the father, and he chooses Manasseh. God says, nope, it's going to be Ephraim. Over and over, you see this God going against what's convention, to where almost in the way God works is unorthodoxy as far as the way he deals with us. You want to try to figure God out? Resolve in your mind that you can't, and you've got it figured out. His ways are so much higher than our ways. Joseph had a problem with this, and he cries out to, God, uh, to his father, No, you're doing it wrong. You know, people had a problem with Jesus in this same regard. He didn't act right. He came and he did things not according to the convention. The nation Israel figured we need a political Messiah. That's what the Old Testament promised. We need a political Messiah to free us from Rome. And yet Jesus came the first time to free them not politically but spiritually from sin. And the nation didn't get it, so they rejected him. In fact, Jesus says, to what shall I compare this nation or this generation? He says, they're like kids. They're like children who dance in the marketplace and who say, uh, we played the flute, or who sing in the marketplace. We played the flute, but you didn't dance. We sang a sad song, but you didn't cry. In other words, Jesus is saying, or the nation is saying to Jesus, you didn't act right. You didn't act like we wanted you to act. Jesus said, you're acting like children when you do that. Even Jesus' own disciples had a problem with Jesus. Most notably, Peter. He's the one that had the continual foot-and-mouth disease. Over and over, he kept saying no to Jesus. One time, in particular, Jesus told him, I'm going to die for the sins of the world, told the whole, all the disciples. And the Bible says that Peter kind of pulled Jesus off to the side, tried to set him straight. It says it rebuked him. Okay, rebuking Jesus, saying, this shall never happen to you, Lord. That's what Peter told him. On another occasion, Jesus came to wash all the disciples' feet, a very lowly task. It's kind of like God shoveling manure. And came to Peter's feet, and uh, Peter said, No, Lord, you shall never wash my feet. Again, telling the Lord of the universe he doesn't know what he's doing. 
And then again, in the book of Acts, you see Peter given this vision of all this food that used to be unclean, that now God has said is clean. God says, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, No, God, I won't do it. Again, telling God no. And I got to thinking, what would have happened if God on those three occasions had listened to Peter? What would have happened if Jesus said, You know, you're right, Peter, I'm not going to die on the cross? That would have been a bummer. What would have happened if, if Peter would have won out at the foot washing ceremony? What kind of arrogance do you think we would have in the church now? Well, no, I, I don't need to be served. And I certainly don't need to serve others. Jesus was giving us an example to be servant to one another. And the issue with the sheet and the food coming down, basically the context of that would be if, if, God, had not, if God had listened to Peter, only Jews would go to heaven. Not you and me who for probably for the most part are not Jewish. And so I'm really glad as a non-Jew and as a sinner and as one who struggles with pride that I need to be a servant, I'm really glad that God didn't listen to Peter. Because if he had, we'd all be in trouble. God in his unorthodox way is willing to let us wonder at him. Even though we don't understand at the time why we're being hurled across the yard. The stories that we've looked at in our time together in the scriptures, this morning and every morning, every Sunday morning, are not just stories in a book. This is history of real people who lived real lives, who suffered just like you and I do, and a lot sometimes worse than you and I do. And they struggled with God, in a sense, crossing his arms and not doing things the way, we, the way they think they should be done. And we struggle the same way. You wonder why always in your life there's anxiety. Always in your life there's financial pressure. You say, Lord, what are you doing? Time after time we'll bring our desires before God. You know, heartfelt, long desires uh, from a life and say, Lord... And you present it to his right hand. And you say, Lord, would you bless this? And what does he do? He doesn't. Your heart, Joseph's heartfelt desire was for Manasseh to be blessed as the firstborn. And yet he didn't do it. His father crossed his arms and blessed what Joseph least expected. In fact, didn't expect it all because it wasn't what was the norm. And we too, when God does that to us, we protest like Joseph did. And we'll tell God, no, Lord. This is what I want. And God, in his patient, fatherly way, you can almost see him shaking his head, saying, I know, my son, I know. I know what you want. But my way is a better way, though you can't understand it now. A couple of verses that are special to me in this regard. The very end of Romans 11. Look at this and try to fathom what Paul wrote when he wrote this. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. They are so beyond us. Isaiah says, one of my favorite verses in Isaiah, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, 
and my thoughts than your thoughts. When's the last time you looked up at the clouds, looked up at the stars, at how far away they are from you? God says, that's about how far away my thoughts are from your thoughts. It's like a little newborn child trying to fathom astrophysics. It just isn't going to happen. It's so far above. God is so far above our thoughts. Marcus Dodds writes some helpful words. He says, You may be at a loss as to know why he does no more to deliver you from some sin, or why he doesn't make you more successful in your efforts to aid others, or why while he so liberally prospers you in one part of your condition, you get so much less in another that is far nearer to your heart. But God does what he will with his own. And if you do not find in one point the whole blessing and prosperity you think should flow from such a mediator as you have, you may only conclude that what is lacking there will elsewhere be found more wisely bestowed. God knows what he's doing. God's ways are higher than our ways. And thank God that they are. Because like Peter, we'd be in a tight if God listened to us. Like Joseph, it's the same way. God knows what he's doing when he crosses his arms. His ways are not our ways. Something else that's helpful from our story is that faith may be strengthened by looking at God's faithful past. Think back. Remember several weeks ago when we saw Jacob say this. Jacob said to his sons, Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you would take Benjamin. All these things are against me. This was a time in his life that he felt he was hurting. Probably one of the greatest moments of pain that he ever experienced in his long years. Joseph is dead. Simeon is as good as dead. And you want to take Benjamin. Basically, all these things are against me. And yet we know that that wasn't true. God was actually using them all for him. And in your life, sometimes you're going to be swimming in confusion. You're not going to understand why you always don't have enough money. And yet you have plenty of debt. You're not going to understand why sometimes your marriage seems a lot more work than it's worth. You're not going to understand why your kids, after all your efforts, are actually sinners, much to your surprise. You don't understand why the dreams of your youth, of yesterday, of what you wanted to be doing at this point in your life, are dashed on the rocks of reality. And you look back and you think, man, I was so idealistic and naive. Lord, I thought you gave me those dreams. If you were to ask Jacob how he felt here in Genesis 42, where he says all these things and against me, if you were to ask him if there was any hope, he would have laughed in your face with confidence, saying there ain't no way that there's hope for my family. And yet... What did we read today? Chapter 48, verse 11. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your children as well. Such is the grace of God. 
to do exceeding abundant beyond all that you can ask or even imagine, we're told in Ephesians. Beyond what you can even think, that is what God can do for you. The great verse in Romans chapter 8. Remember, Jacob had said, all these things are against me? Quite the opposite, Jacob. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. In fact, he says a few verses later, if God's for us, who is against us? All these things are against me? No, in the sovereignty of God, even all the painful things you're going through now are for you. You say, well, I just don't see that. Jacob didn't see it either. He said, everything's against me. And yet, in hindsight, from chapter 42 to 48, he was able to see what he could not understand at the time. And the unorthodox way that God deals with our lives, looking back at the past, your faith for today, while you're swimming in confusion, can be strengthened. Looking at the past and how God was faithful then. I have a good friend who got married last year. And he told me the night before his wedding, he said, three years ago, I never figured I'd even be alive today. He was into drugs, he was into alcohol, and into several other stuff I won't tell you. But he said, I didn't figure I'd be alive today, much less being married tomorrow. And not only was he alive, not only was he off drugs and alcohol and other stuff, but he was a Christian. He had placed his faith in the Lord Jesus and his sins were forgiven. Not only that, he was about the next day to marry a godly Christian woman. Such is the grace of God to take a life that is absolutely hopeless, humanly speaking, and to not only give it hope, but to, just to go so far beyond what you can even imagine. And you say, well, that's great, but I'm the exception. You're not the exception. You're not. My friend would have thought that he was the exception. Jacob would have thought he's the exception. All these things are against me. And I may not know you personally, but I can promise you without even knowing you that in spite of the failures of your past, if you will honestly look, you will look back and see a faithful God. That in spite of your faithlessness, He has been faithful. And you can look back at how He is faithful. And then when you didn't understand, now you do. Now you don't understand. And you can cling to the faithfulness of God in the past where you are today. This is what Jacob was doing. So he looked back and he said, this is what God promised me. Rachel died. God promised me that God's going to send me back to the land. I'm about to die. And God's going to be with you, just like He was with me. He was able to look at the past and have a confidence for the future. The New Testament looked at this event as the key crowning event in Jacob's life. Hebrews 11 says this, By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. Why was it by faith? Because he was promising Joseph something that he didn't see happening yet. Leaving Egypt and going back to Canaan. The pain that you're going through now, or the pain that you may go through tomorrow, the disillusionment, the wondering why God seems so far away, the anxiety that you feel, or maybe will feel, 
How are you going to make it through that? I think one of the best ways to do it is to look at how faithful God has been in the past and to realize that God is unorthodox in the way He deals with us. You can't figure Him out. His ways are far beyond our ways. His mind is far beyond our mind. There's a verse in Amazing Grace, the song that we at least all know the title to, maybe the first verse. But it says, Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. How have you made it already through many dangers, toils, and snares? His grace has brought me safe thus far. Well, so what? What about the future? His grace will lead me home. A confidence of God's character in the past, then you didn't understand, now you do. Gives you strength for today in what you don't understand, that one day you will. Let's sing together this verse, just this verse, in Amazing Grace. Let's sing it twice, once to remember it and once to mean it. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me mean it. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far. And grace will lead me home. Let's pray. Lord, we are glad that you are God, and not us. And though we want to be sometimes and run our own lives, though all of us have sinned and fall short of your glory, Thank you that you do not give in to our pleadings to have it our way when you know we don't understand. You love us enough to do what is best for us even if that means letting us hurt. And like that little giraffe being sprawled across the yard in confusion, for his greater good and safety, you allow many dangers, toils, and snares to come. And yet, your grace has brought us safe thus far. And we can take a confidence that it is grace that will lead us home. I pray, Lord, for the one who is here today and expecting that they will get home, that they will get to heaven any other way but by the grace of God. Perhaps by going to church, perhaps by good works. That you would convince them in their hearts that sin separates them from you, as sin would all of us, except for your grace in Jesus dying for our sins. O oh Lord, I pray for them to place their faith in Jesus.
And for us who have, help us to stay focused on you, on your character that never fails. Never failed us in the past, Lord, and you won't fail us in the future. We cling to this as we marvel at your unorthodox way of loving us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Lord bless you.